Well, we've reached the final chapter of Ruth. God has been skillfully painting a picture of the process of redemption and a picture of Christ in the person of Boaz. God has his brush out and he's putting on the finishes touches in this amazing picture. So let's continue in chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Why the gate? This was a place where transactions were settled, where business was conducted. Absalom recruited men by offering to settle disputes in their favor at the city gate. Kings would go to the gate to conduct legal business. A comparable place today would be City Hall or the Grange Hall, and auctions still do happen on courthouse steps. We always think of Proverbs 31 as speaking of an honorable woman, but in that chapter, it also speaks of her husband. And it says that he is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Boaz is a man of standing whose presence at the gate would not be unusual. I'm sure he had been involved in many previous transactions settled at the gate before this. Verse one speaks of another of the amazing coincidence we've seen in Ruth. It says, just as, or behold, or it just so happened. Boaz is walking in obedience to his heavenly father and he remembers his vow as surely as the Lord lives. As we walk in obedience in the spirit, God is orchestrating divine encounters. And God the conductor, with his conductor's baton in hand, leads Boaz into the next stanza. Boaz motioned to the closer relative and said, pull up a chair, my friend. I've got something to talk to you about. The word friend here does not mean a close friend. The word is poloni almoni, which means an unnamed person or place. If the rabbi said someone was a poloni almoni, it would be like you and I reading about John Doe in the paper. It's a rhyming Jewish figure of speech called a farago. Hodgepodge, helter-skelter are modern English faragos. The idea, this is Mr. No-Name, Mr. So-and-so. The writer, in contrast to Boaz's prominence, sees no need to give this man's name. Maybe it was a kind thing, so that down through history, he wouldn't be remembered as the one who wouldn't redeem. What does that say about Boaz's reputation? Oh, how did the man respond? He sat down, he turned aside, and readied himself to listen to Boaz. What does that say about Boaz's reputation? He was worth listening to. What Boaz said counted. Have you ever walked down to Midway at a fair as the carnies are calling out to you to throw a dart, shoot a basketball? We don't turn aside <clears throat> because we don't put any value on what they're saying or pitching. Boaz's words, however, have weight. 
They have value. They were worth listening to. And Boaz begins his working of the transaction. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. If you have a study Bible, there's probably a comment on the number 10 in regard to the elders. 10 was a quorum for a synagogue meeting. For an official meeting in modern Judaism, 10 men are required. 10 was the number of men needed for a marriage benediction. In those days, you didn't have a court reporter or a video of the proceeding. You had 10 witnesses, and these were leaders. In the, room, in the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew, the word elders means bearded. In the Greek, it was translated as presbyteros. Later in time, the presbyteros would become the Sanhedrin. So this was not just a chat with a beer and friends at the bar. Boaz is setting the stage for a very serious business transaction. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Why is Naomi selling the land? She's broke. She needs the money. The word used here in translated selling is actually a tense that means that the, the property has already been sold or is in the process. It's kind of like the land is in foreclosure. It's just not finalized yet. When Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem, they probably took stock of their circumstances. They put their assets on one side, their liabilities on the other. And one of their assets was a piece of property that Elimelech owned. The best option at the time was, let's put it on Craigslist, get some cash so we can live. So how is Ruth tied into the land? Elimelech's sons would inherit the land when he died, so Malon, Ruth's husband, was the last owner of the property. So Boaz begins the spiel. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. As you read this, you realize that Boaz was a very skilled negotiator. He lays out the benefits of buying the land. He mentions he's giving the information in an open arena with 10 elders listening in. No one is going to be able to say that he did a bait and switch or was underhanded in his dealing. He wanted it all above board and above reproach. In fact, the words that I, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention actually is translated, I want to uncover your ear. I want to expose everything to you. I want nothing hidden. This is an interesting quality that we can see of Boaz's character. He's willing to take his place in line. He's willing to wait his turn. And to do that requires humility. 
Alongside Boaz's position and power is an attitude of humbleness. So how does this closer relative respond? Yeah, I'll buy it. Let me add this to my land portfolio. I've been looking for a few more acres. The I here is emphatic. It's kind of like I, 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 I will redeem it. In my neighborhood, if that happened as kids, we'd say, I got dibs. So imagine you're Boaz. How are you feeling right now? If it was me, I would feel great sadness. But there's nothing showing that emotion here. In the ten-handed game at the gate, Boaz has been laying down his poker cards. Ten. Jack. Queen. King. And here's the last card. Ace. Oh, there's one more little detail you should know about. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, <clears throat> you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You know those 10 guys watching? They probably had a lot to talk about at the dinner table that night. It's a great story. It's great drama, ups, downs, tension. But Boaz is leading the process, and he wants everyone to see exactly what is happening. No one is able, will be able to say, Boaz pulled the fast one at the gate today, and he lays it out. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite. What's implied in that statement? You just got another wife, and you're going to need to produce children. Let's relook at the idea of the leveret marriage in Deuteronomy. When brothers live together, one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. So the ace card says this, you now have a wife named Ruth. And when a son is born, it won't be Poloni Almoni Jr. It's gonna be Malon Jr. Was there anything else that Boaz revealed in his trump card? Oh yeah, by the way, your wife's a Moabite. So now all the cards are on the table. How does this relative feel about redeeming now? He knows when to fold them. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So I will becomes I can't. Impair means to endanger, to spoil, to ruin, to pervert, to corrupt, or to wipe out. How would this corrupt his own estate? He'd have a future son through Ruth that would be carrying on not his, but her dead husband's name. He would have at minimum two women to support. 
he would also be married to a Moabitess. So he says, you do it. A, re a redeemer does not have to be just a close relative. He doesn't just need to have the means. He also has to be willing. Almoni Poloni says, I can't. Boaz says, I will. And our redeemer is willing as well. For God so loved the world that he willingly sent his one and only son. And listen to the attitude of Christ and his willingness to step out of heaven and into skin to redeem us. Who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We have a redeemer who has the means, he has the power, and he has the love and willingness to restore us, to give us back what was lost, to buy us out of slavery to sin, out of our poverty of character, and to bring us back into his family, to stand in his riches, clothed in his righteousness before his father and our father. Now this was the custom in former times of Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. In context here, the sandal is tied to possession of the land. Where you walked, what your sandal touched, symbolized what you took ownership of. Remember God's word to Joshua, everywhere you set the sole of your foot shall be yours. So the 10 witnesses would be able to say, I saw it, yep, Mr. Poloni Almoni, he sure enough removed his sandal, he said he wasn't willing to pay the price, he said, I'm not walking into this situation. He stepped out and Boaz stepped in. The Poloni was forgotten forever and his name disappears from history. He was a heel because he had no soul. <laughs> he told Boaz to buy it back himself. How do you think Boaz felt when he heard those words? He was excited. Was the cost and sacrifice any less for him than it would have been for the closer relative? No, it was equal sacrifice. The cost was the same. So what was the difference? He loved Ruth. What was the motivation for Christ to redeem us? His love for us. For God so loved the world. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers 
and from the gate of this native place, you are witnesses to this day. Who's missing in this list of family members? Who's missing from the redemption? Orpah. Was Boaz the redeemer not willing to cover the price of her being redeemed as well? He would have been willing. He had the position and the means. Her lack of faith kept her out. She wouldn't take the step. Maybe the old life just had too much pull. There are probably some here who, like Orpah, have felt the tug at your heart to leave everything and follow Christ and take the step and begin your walk with God. Orpah right now is experiencing a life that will never end. But it's a life in darkness, separated from God. Ruth right now is experiencing a life that never ends as well. But it is spent in light. It's spent in love. Singing God's praises, enjoying life with him and with Christ, her redeemer. I plead with you to choose well. To take that step of faith and do that before you leave this building today. The consequences and the benefits are beyond comprehension. Now when Boaz is speaking to the elders and relating the transaction that has just taken place, does he shy away from Ruth's past? No, he says loud and clear, Ruth is a Moabite and she will be his wife and he's not embarrassed or ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed of us. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. He calls us family. He calls us his brothers and sisters. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. So how did all the people in Bethlehem view this Moabitess now? She's family. She's one of them. Rachel and Leah, what did they do? Well, their sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, and from them came Christ. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. So she was a woman well-known and talked, out, talked of in the town. Just a side note here. <clears throat> Who was the cute one? Rachel, right? Who was the one that got Jacob's love? Rachel. Who was the one that probably had the sadder and harder life? Leah, described as the girls with cow's eyes. The newlywed who probably woke up on her honeymoon morning and did not see adoring love, but rather disappointment in her husband's eyes. But who is the one God chose to be the mother in the line that his son would be born into? It was Leah, who had a son named Judah. I once did a sermon called Cinderella is Just a Story, 
because a lot of us have lives not like Rachel, but a little more like Leah's. God loves the downtrodden, the ignored, the rejected, the unlovely. He loves those who have dreams that have been crushed. Leah had a hard life, but in the blessing that is given here for Ruth, we see once again, God honors her. Ephrathah, which means fruitful, is just another name for Bethlehem. It would be like saying, you may you have wealth in Seattle and become prosperous in the Emerald City. And they are praying a blessing of fruitfulness on Ruth and Boaz's union. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Why Perez? Well, it may be because Perez, like Ruth's son-to-be named Obed, was an offspring of a leveret type of union. Remember the, son, the story? Judah had a son named Ur. He made a, married a non-Israelite named Tamar, and then he died. But the other son, Shelah, was not given to her in marriage. So she dressed up like a prostitute and enticed Judah into going bed with her and had twins. Perez was the oldest. And his kids became the ancestors of the Bethlehemites, the Ephrathites. You know, that's an awful scandalous story. What are your thoughts on Jesus having a heritage like that? Jesus didn't put on his best suit, white gloves, and safely redeem us. In 2013, there was a collapse of a building in Bangladesh. <clears throat> I remember seeing the pictures on the web. The rescuers were covered with grime, blood, and stench. As they searched the rubble for those in need of rescue, one article said that the smell of death permeated the clothes and the hair of those who rescued. When God sent Jesus to redeem and rescue, it wasn't a clean and easy rescue mission. He shed his glory and put on skin. He stepped into this world among sheep poop and dusty blankets. He was born in the a line of ancestors who were deceivers, liars, connivers, murderers, prostitutes. Jesus got right in the rubble. He stepped into where the pain was. The cross was sacrifice, but in my mind, the initial sacrifice was stepping out of glory and into us. Why? Because he loves you and I. The story of Ruth is a story of love, of redemption, of healing, of provision, but it is a light among a whole lot of darkness. It's the preview that says help is coming. A redeemer, a rescue, rescuer that you so desperately need is on his way. And the main character, the lead, the hero, the ultimate redeemer will be through this woman's, this young woman Ruth's offspring or seed. 
Who's responsible for birth? The Lord. He's the one who gives offspring. So we're about to finish our story. And now, the happily ever after part. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now when Ruth and Boaz got married, what changed? Everything. They became one. They stood and said to each other, all that I have, all that I own, all that I am becomes yours. Ruth said, all my poverty, all my plans, all my love, all my hopes, my fears, my dreams, I give to you. Boaz says, all my wealth, all my influence, all my protection, all my strength, all of my body, everything I give to you. So how does that play out as a picture of our union with Christ? It too is an exchange life. Our poverty for his riches. Our weakness for his strength. Our fear for his peace. Our death for his life. When Boaz married Ruth, they were no longer two, but one. What Ruth did no longer just affected her. It also affected Boaz. In our union with Christ, it is no different. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Let me translate that a little bit. Or as I drive 65 in a 55, I am uniting Christ with a speeder. As I eat the fourth donut, I'm uniting Christ with a glutton. As my eyes wander to places off limits, I am uniting Christ with an adulterer. When we are joined with Christ, we are no longer our own. Where he goes, where we go, he goes. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So here's a question. The one who became famous, the one who will renew her life and sustain her, is this talking about Boaz? No, it's talking about Obed, Ruth's son. It says that he's a restorer that he's a, a, a sustainer. How does Christ restore us? And what, he is, what is he restoring us to? When God made Adam in the garden, he was in the image of God. The image was lost when Adam sinned. Christ, through his spirit, is in the process of restoring that image. How does he sustain us? Israel, when they were in the wilderness, needed sustenance. And God sustained them through daily manna. Christ said he is the bread of life, the bread of heaven. And God gave manna daily. How does that apply to God sustaining us through Christ? It needs to be daily. We can't live off of yesterday's bread. 
yesterday's experiences with Christ. And what an amazing comment in verse 15 about Ruth. Naomi had lost two sons. If they had said Ruth is better than a son, it would have been a huge affirmation of Ruth's character. But seven sons, wow. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Okay, let's think about Naomi in chapter one. The photographer sets up his tripod for the shot. Older women, bitter, empty food basket, sad, sad eyes, empty lap. Now we're here again for another photo shoot, but it's in the nursery at Boaz's house. Rocking chair. Radiant woman, not empty, but full of joy, bread in the bowl on the table, and in her arms, her grandson, little Obi. The grandson who would grow up for her, grow up to care for her, protect her, manage the fields, and carry on the name of the family. Wow. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Interesting, who named him? The neighbors. Would you trust your neighbors? <laughs> they named him Obed. It means to serve. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. How does that imply to the ultimate redeemer who would come through the line of Obed? In Matthew, it says, just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. <clears throat> and Obed would have a son named Jesse, who would be the father of David. And interestingly, David would not forget his roots. When he was on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel 22, it says he went to the king of Moab and asked if his parents could stay safely with the king. We end the chapter with the genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Genealogies can sometimes just seem like a bunch of names. But when a genealogy is orchestrated by God, when it's predicted beforehand, it shows that we have a God who is all-knowing and powerful. We learned in Ruth that Elimelech, Malon, and Kilian were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. In 1 Samuel, it says David was the son of Jesse, and he was an Ephrathite. And it's interesting and amazing to read the words of a prophet named Micah 800 years before the birth of our Redeemer. And he says this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. God planned it all. 
before the creation of the earth, he planned to bring a young Moabite girl of faith and a son of a Jericho harlot together. In a barley field in a little town of Bethlehem, this would be the setting. Within walking distance of that barley field, in a feeding trough filled with straw, in a stable, simple stable, where God, because of his love for us, would penetrate this world, put on flesh, and a greater Boaz, our kinsman, the precious Lamb of God, the Messiah Jesus, our Redeemer, would be born. We have an amazing God. He says about himself in Isaiah 46, I am God. There is no other. I am God and there was no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And through his great love and with all his great pleasure, he has redeemed us.